I was so afraid people would say no that I would undervalue myself. And so I think the greatest lesson I learned is like that no good has ever come from undervaluing yourself. And whether no matter what business you're in, if you don't charge enough, you're going to end up resenting making it, resenting the client, resenting the piece, hating what you do. And it's just, it's just going to be a miserable way to live. <laughs> so That's the voice of Jeremy Hill, founder of Jericho Home. And I'm excited to talk with him right after this word from our sponsor. This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Jobber. Jobber brings people and technology together by keeping jobs on track, customers happy, and your business organized. Jobber also just recently launched a new grant program, Boost by Jobber, a program providing $100,000 to 20 small local home service businesses across the U.S. and Canada. So whether you're just starting your business or you're a well-established business, you're invited to apply for a grant. Just visit BoostByJobber.com. That's BoostByJobber.com. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Jeremy Hill, founder of the Marietta, Georgia-based furniture company, Jericho Home. Jeremy builds furniture that you just want to gather around, custom pieces that fit your home like they've always been there. He's grown his company from a little garage to a thriving and successful business that keeps growing stronger year by year. But before we get ahead of ourselves, Let's start at the beginning of his story. Like the heirloom furniture Jeremy builds, his journey into the world of woodworking was passed down from the generations before him. Growing up, my grandfather taught me how to build things. He was always, um, he was an architect and a preacher. He was a multifaceted guy. And he always had a project going on. And we spent our summers with our grandparents a lot. And so I learned to you know, he would buy properties in East Texas and there'd be a lake on them. And he was like, we're going to build a dock today. And so, you know, we'd be in hip waders and, you know, planting, you know, posts underwater and doing all sorts of stuff, you know, I mean, so we just, I learned to do what, you know, frame, framing kind of building early on and would work with him and a couple of his guys from the time I was old enough to be able to do that, whether that be fishing docks or gazebos or, you know, a deck stuff like that and then I also would help him work on you know he was always the kind of guy who would help build his own houses and you know so I would I learned how to you know frame up walls and put windows in and work on stairs and just by working with him he was just a real handy gifted guy when it came to knowing that kind of stuff and he was able to pass a lot of that on to me and then when I got old enough, I went to college and I actually went to college and got degrees in history and English and ended up being a teacher for a long time. And when I got tired of grading papers and parent teacher conferences and lesson plans and, you know, rubrics and all that kind of stuff, I wanted to, I was really missing working with my hands. And so I started building decks again. I built a deck over spring break in my own yard. And then a neighbor was like, I didn't know you could do that. And would you help me build my deck? And so I just kind of started doing it as a side hustle again while I was still teaching. And then it didn't take long to start making a lot more money building decks and building sheds and stuff like that uh, than I was teaching. <laughs> and so 
I, I started to go, I made it a part-time job. So I went from side hustle to part-time job. And then it wasn't long before people started asking me, well, hey, could you build like a table that we could put outdoor on the deck? And so I started building, I guess, outdoor furniture before I started building indoor furniture. And so I, I was able to cut my teeth and, you know, go through my making bad joints period and all that kind of stuff on outdoor furniture. And my interest led me to actually studying the art of making furniture and looking more at design and not following you know, plans, writing my own cut lists, and, you know, it just kind of evolved. And um, I'd like to think that I took to it quickly, but in truth, it was probably a pretty natural and organic process where I went from one to the other. And then I was fortunate enough to be able to have enough business to start the side, you know, the part-time job. I, I was able to take the leap and become full-time. And now it's become, I largely do furniture and cabinetry i mean so interior stuff we still build outdoor tables and outdoor furniture if we're asked to but that's that's kind of how that evolved there is always that difference between say building furniture as a hobby and building furniture believing you can make a living from it did you ever have that moment let's let's call it an aha moment maybe it was a specific commission a client comment maybe it was simply looking at your bank account and realizing where most of your money was coming from uh when when did you realize that this could actually be your calling this hobby that you grew up doing that you left and then came back to could actually be something you could do professionally yeah, that's a great question. Um, matter of fact, I did. I, I had a real good streak going early on where I just got asked to do a lot of jobs in a row and it felt really good to be busy doing something that made me physically tired instead of mentally tired. And I know that uh, then when you, after you own the business, you get mentally tired again. But, you know, it's a uh, it, but doing that, it was really so refreshing to just be working with my hands again and doing that, that I was willing to you know, to do anything and finance myself any way that I could so that I could keep that feeling going and doing that. And there was one particular job where they asked me to build a lot of stuff. And it was, um, it was, a, there was a guy who owned a business, a small business, and he wanted to create a uh, creative meeting space uh, for his team. Um, and so I was able to, and so I got asked to build several pieces at once and the budget on it, of course I underpriced it because I was new to it and didn't quite do it, but it was enough budget for me to realize that absolutely I could, I think I could make a living doing this, you know, if I keep doing it. Now it was a little bit of pie in the sky thinking because, you know, when I look back, it was not nearly enough money to, <laughs> to leave a job over and, you know, all that kind of stuff, but it was uh, enough for me to have that, like you kind of, kind of called it an aha moment and a, enough inspiration and enough motivation to put myself out there and start doing it. So there are a lot of people out there who are on the fence about going full time in this industry. Maybe they're already part time or maybe it's just a hobby or maybe it's even just a daydream that they think about from time to time. And it makes sense because this is a big jump and something that people shouldn't just do without thinking about. You are not someone who jumps without thinking as well. Your background as a teacher and just your personality as a whole makes you a very rational person and somebody who's not prone to making decisions that affect your life and your livelihood without thinking on them. 
but it, it is good to hear that you did take that jump that you took that jump based on a feeling yes it was a good job but that one job wasn't going to make you unfathomably rich or set for life you you knew that it was something you wanted to do you had that feeling and you went with it absolutely for me i'm kind of i'm not by any means impulsive i think about a lot of stuff i mean i you know i don't i don't hardly impulse buy anything or anything like that but at the same time, I was, I needed it to be an inspiration kind of thing. That's kind of how I operate. And it, it was, you, you summed it up really well. I was able to feel really fulfilled. And while I loved teaching and I loved working with young people and, you know, helping them to, you know, learn and grasp, you know, concepts and in literature and in, in, in history, you know, thematic concepts. I loved all that stuff. I was just really missing. I don't, I, I was missing a creative aspect and certainly furniture building has a lot of creativity involved with it. And so it, it really met a lot of, you know, I guess what you call them emotional and physical needs of mine. I just wanted to get out there and start doing that stuff and feeling fulfilled in that way. And I don't think I realized how much I was missing it until I, kind of stumbled into it again and was it was a really satisfying feeling to you know have that I mean teaching kind of a long a long game you know I mean you work with kids and you work with stuff and you hope that it's working and you hope that they're going to turn out all right and move on to the next grade whereas building a piece of furniture has the good sense to go away right it's a great feeling but you finish a project and you move on to the next and there's all there's an instant gratification aspect of it and while some projects do seem to drag on and on, it certainly feels good to be able to have, you know, to sit at a table that you made and drink a cup of coffee at it or to deliver a piece to someone and it, it you know, and it sits in their kitchen and, you know, their family's going to gather around that and talk to each other at night and have breakfast together in the morning and, you know, say goodbye to each other on their way out to school. That, that, that's meaningful. And so the, I was, it, it, it was very fulfilling. And I wasn't expecting how fulfilling it was going to be. And so I was immediately drawn to it. And like I said, was willing to do just about anything to, you know, keep that going because I just loved it so much. So it was an inspiration, but it also um, I was lucky I had the background I had to be able to start. Yes, there is that emotional connection you had to it and, and, and a feeling like this is what I was meant to do. But there is also the business side to it because yeah hopes and dreams don't pay the bills. You know, you said that first job that, or not the first job, but the, the job that really opened your eyes to that this could be a business, you uh, dramatically underpriced. And I'm sure if you looked back on it now, you would approach it really, really differently. What, ha how has your pricing changed and the way you look at your business changed from when you started to now? Sure. Um, that is probably the biggest evolution. I mean, uh, to me, that's if, if anyone's thinking about starting a business, this is the thing that I wish someone had sat me down and said, hey, by the way, you know, the pace you're going at is unsustainable, <laughs> you know, because I did. I it was I laughably underpriced that first job and did not gain monetarily from it. I gained in confidence and able to be able to go out and, you know, have the energy to go do it again. Um, at first, it was really, I was just listening to half-baked advice from a lot of different people, you know, and you get the old, like, 
unproven and untrue formula like oh you should just charge you know price of materials times three you know that kind of like there's no easy formula for that now granted i do work on a formula now and i'll be happy to talk about that but at the same time you know when you're building custom pieces the formula doesn't always fit so you need to be able to consider things like overhead and you know what is your shop costs what are the material costs how many hours does it actually take to build this thing and that was something i didn't have much experience with you know because as a hobbyist and there and I think some of the, I think probably the best furniture makers in the world are probably hobbyists who just have really good tools and a lot of knowledge. You know, they have the, they can spend six months making a great, uh, you know, a piece of art, you know, whereas in a business, it, while we all like to believe that we're great artists, it, in the end, you know, volume means a lot too. So you have to be able to make pieces fairly quickly or sell them for an incredible amount of money. <laughs> so um, either way, it's, uh, I, I learned to stop doing generic pricing and guessing at my hours. And I started actually figuring out how long it took me to build, let's say a dining table. You know, here's the top, here's the base, here's how much material I need. So here's that money accounted for. Here's the amount of time, or here's the amount of money I'm gonna spend going to get that material. Um, here's the amount of money it takes me to climate control a place and keep that material in good condition until I'm ready to use it. And then let's say that it, you know, for sake of argument that I figured out that it takes me about 22 hours to make a, you know, a dining room table. Well, I need to establish an hourly rate. And then, you know, uh, labor isn't profit. And so I had, that was another lesson that I had to learn that there is a profit margin that has to be involved there. I mean, nowhere in the world that you go in, that's a succeeding business, you go in and you're not paying the profit margin on something else because that's how that's actually how your company makes money you know the company makes profit at that point i make i might make money from the hours i spend because i'm charging an hourly rate but jericho home as a business doesn't make money without a profit margin and so i had to learn to incorporate all that into a formula and so once you know your hourly rate know what your profit margin is going to be figure in sales tax and do your cost of materials you know, whatever else you want to add in there, shop fees for, you know, blades don't change themselves and sharpen themselves. Lights don't stay on by themselves. Once you've got that formula going, then it becomes fairly easy to start plugging in and knowing what something should cost. Um, I used to worry a whole lot about comparing. Like, I wonder what someone else who makes the same thing is charging. That doesn't really matter. Honestly, it matters. Whatever numbers work for you, and if you can sustain that, then that's what your formula needs to be. You know, I mean, yes, the there is the idea that the market will bear a certain amount or I could be, maybe I'm leaving money on the table. I wonder about that stuff sometimes, but for the most part, I try to consider those factors when I'm pricing out things. And that's a far cry from where I started when I was just, I was so afraid people would say no that I would undervalue myself. And so I think the greatest lesson I learned is like that no good has ever come from undervaluing yourself. And whether, no matter what business you're in, if you don't charge enough, you're going to end up resenting making it, resenting the client, resenting the piece, hating what you do. And it's just it's just going to be a miserable way to live. <laughs> so hearing the word no when people are starting out seems like the end of the world, like a death rattle for your business. But in truth, a lot of times you hear that word no, it's a good thing. It probably doesn't seem like it at the time, but it is for a lot of reasons you get to look back and see why they said no. You get to reevaluate how you're presenting yourself 
to the outside world and you learn from that. And then you look back in a few years on that job, that that no job that seemed like it was going to be your big break, uh, was going to be, you know, the thing that propelled you to stardom. And you realize that it was actually priced entirely wrong or you had no idea how to build it. And it would have just been a complete disaster and could have even tanked your entire business. The easy jobs, the ones that you always hear yes from, you go out and you do them and you don't think about them. The no jobs are the ones that are the roadblocks and you have to stop and think and you have to stop and think about what you're doing and if you're doing it right. And if you're doing it right for you and for the success of your business. Oh, I agree. I mean, and also anytime I've ever, I've only done this a couple of times early on, you know, someone would say, man, I'm really eager to do this job, but if you could just come down a little bit and I would, and those ended up being the hardest clients to work with. It's not saying that they didn't deserve some sort of break or whatever, but no one does. I mean, it costs what it costs, you know, it's like, it doesn't matter if someone is, you know, if you, if you believe them to be ultra wealthy or if you believe them to be ultra average, it doesn't matter. I mean, like I said, it should cost what it costs. And that's, and, and hearing no, in addition to the things that you just said, actually is good. I think in another way, it helps you understand if you're getting, it helps you understand where you stand. If you're getting told yes all the time, you're probably charging too little, you know? And if you're getting told no every single time, well, you might be charging too much, but you know, this is an arbitrary number. And so I don't have a lot of backing, but I always feel like I'm doing okay. If I get told no, like, you know, 30% of the time, you know, it probably means that I'm right where I need to be in my pricing to be really honest. So, cause if I'm here, if I'm getting more yeses than no's, but still getting some no's, then I know that I'm not just, you know, leaving a lot of money on the table, so to speak. But it, it also, like you said, it could be a blessing in disguise. Sometimes there are jobs that I got told no, that I really at first thought they were the one that got away. And then later on, you know, realized that I would have been way in over my head or I would over budget or it wouldn't have been a good situation. So absolutely. No is certainly not a death sentence and it certainly is a learning tool and uh, everyone needs to hear it. <laughs> You said that you've shied away from looking at other people's businesses or wondering what the competition is doing, and I get that. You can't always chase everyone else's dreams. But the truth is, there are a lot of people out there who are building furniture, who are building custom furniture. It used to be that custom furniture was very localized, but now it's, it's a global society, and people have their choice with custom be it local, other side of the country, or even the other side of the world. To be a sustainable business, you need clients. You need to be getting those clients that could be going other places. How are you getting them? How are you getting your projects? How are you getting and keeping your clients? Well, um, I, I, that's another really good question. I think that I've been pretty fortunate in terms of uh, being able to have Instagram be a fairly effective marketing tool for me. I try to treat my page more like a, you know, ever-changing portfolio. I really don't, I used to do a whole lot more stuff with tips and tricks. And when I was more concerned with growing my Instagram account, I'm not that concerned with it anymore. I'm more concerned about having, you know, a little bit more polish on it and make, so I can, you know, direct clients to that so they can see you know an, a body of work a growing body of work um i've had i've been fortunate with word of mouth 
uh, in the part of the world I live in here in the Atlanta area, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, of you know, home volumes. So there's a, the homes are being built and bought and sold rapidly. It's a big growing area. And so there are always people who are wanting to change something, which is how I got into cabinetry. Um, because, you know, I had people ask me, hey, do you do cabinets? Do you do cabinets? Do you do cabinets? And because they either got were moving into a house and they wanted to update the kitchen because they were making it their dream home or they had lived with it for a long time and wanted to change it or just refacing doors and drawers or anything like that. But there was so much business to be had that, you know, I, I've rarely ever had a really slow period, which is I'm really lucky to have now. Uh, that said, you know, a couple of years ago, I remember one April was <laughs> the cruelest month. I mean, I was worried that I'm like, man, I'm not getting any bids. I'm not getting any calls. The phone's not ringing. Nothing's happening. And so I've gone through dry spells, but it's just, I've been pretty fortunate through word of mouth and using Instagram. Now I also have a website. And I, at this point, I've handed out a whole lot of business cards. I've done a few trade shows to kind of get my name out there. I have, um, you know, put some ads on Facebook marketplace just to get a little more coverage. Um, I don't know how effective those really were. I mean, I did get some calls, but um, word of mouth, really, you know, I, a lot of the calls that I get are from someone who says, Hey, you know, I'm friends with, you know, this other client of yours. And I really like the work you did at their place. So I'd love to have you come out and, you know, give me an estimate on X, Y, or Z, be it furniture or cabinets or whatever. And so that kind of keeps us going in, in that regard. But I'm always looking for new ways to market. And if I had to say that, you know, the thing, the area I need the most work in would probably be marketing, to be honest. So. One of the hallmarks of a good entrepreneur is knowing their own shortcomings, be it in marketing, like you just said, or any number of other things that come up in the day-to-day the -day running of a company. You had that awakening in your own business that there was something missing that you felt somebody else could come in and help with. You were already a strong company, a successful business in your own right, but you decided to go and take on a business partner. You hear a lot of stories about people starting businesses with somebody else, so this isn't new. Just listen back to episodes of this podcast and you'll hear people talking about how much more successful they became because they started off with a business partner. But where your story is different is forming a partnership mid-stride in your business, in the middle of your story, so to speak. Your company was doing well. You were successful. You had work. You were really busy. What made you think it was a good idea to partner with someone at that point in your business? Flip side of that coin is that you feel disproportionately busy when it's just you, you know, three or four jobs out and you feel like you're swamped, right? But in reality, it's something where, you know, you, you want to be three or four or five or six jobs out and you, because you need that security. And so I realized pretty quickly that I, I needed to find a partner. And I went over several iterations of how that would go in my mind. I wondered if I should hire someone or if I should work. And I finally decided that I needed to give someone a trial period. And so uh, I actually partnered up with um, a guy named Ed. And he is a really talented woodworker and a really talented furniture maker. And after our initial working together, we just decided to you know, form a, a new LLC using Jericho Home 
you know, the reach that I had and the, um, you know, business model that I was using to partner up and be able to take on more work. And it's actually been a really great process because he is really responsible and really competent and really, um, you know, a go-getter. So I'm able to focus on that thing that we were just talking about earlier about marketing. I'm able to go focus part of my day on talking to clients and getting jobs and maintaining relationships and, you know, chasing down the supplies and talking to the lumber yards. And I'm able to give more of my time over to that and have someone in the shop that I absolutely trust with the level of quality that we're putting out there. And so it's been a really great thing. And then he's also able to, you know, you know, with the relationships that he brought to the table, he's able to maintain those while I am, you know, building. So it, it, it's a good, it's a win-win situation. How did you decide that you wanted to partner with somebody instead of just hiring somebody? Because they seem on face value the same thing, but in truth, they are very different things. How did you come to the conclusion that instead of scaling your company with new employees, you decided to bring on an equal partner? Sure. Yeah, uh, there is a big distinction between the two. Um, primarily, it came since he had just gone, he had left his background was in plastics engineering, actually, and he had just left a pretty decent job to pursue furniture building on his own. And I liked that he was already invested in his own business. And so I knew that he wasn't, it sounds weird, but he wasn't a guy who was coming in and there's nothing wrong with this, but he wasn't a guy who was coming in, who was looking for, Hey, I want a full-time salary and benefits and this. And because at that point it would have created a lot of stress for me to have the onus on me to be like, Hey, I need to provide X, Y, and Z for this person. Whereas someone who was already trying to start their own business and we were kind of in the same spot, it was a more natural fit for us to partner up because we were both willing to share the risk. I mean, and Ed was willing to buy in and understood the value that, you know, my reach had and that, you know, that my slightly older business had over his newer business. But you know, it was, and also wanted him to have creative input. He makes really good furniture. So I wanted us to be able to combine our talents. In truth, you know, Ed was the better cabinet maker. I learned how to make cabinets from Ed. I was not a cabinet guy before that. I was, I mean, I could put together a cabinet and I'd done a few, but he was way better at it than I was. And so I've learned to make cabinets because he brought that skill set to the table. And I, I've, you know, I think in turn, I've imparted a lot of design sense and you know, find furniture stuff over his way. And it's become, you know, it, it was a real symbiotic relationship and one that we were both willing to take on the risk of owning a business together. So we split, you know, the profits of our company 50-50. We are a two person, you know, LLC uh, partnership. And that was a risk that we were both willing to take on. And that made the most sense for us right now because a lot of states have similar laws, but, you know, we're not paying you know, we don't have to pay ourselves unemployment insurance. We can opt to, but it's not illegal for us not to. It's legal for us to work the way we are. So we are able to, you know, utilize, maximize our profits and put as much as we can back into the company by being a partnership than we would have been able to do in an employee-employer relationship. Somebody buying into your dream with their own dream is always going to be stronger than simply a paycheck. You can hire an employee and there are some amazing people out there, don't get me wrong. But for someone you hire, it's always going to be a job to them. 
if you're partnering with somebody and it becomes their life, just like it is your life, that's a much different way to work together. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't have said it better myself. You nailed it. Ed and I both want it to succeed for the same reasons and are willing to give, you know, whatever it takes to make that happen. Now that said, we try very hard not to, I don't buy into this like hustle till you're dead theory that a lot of people do. You know, I don't think it's healthy to work 15 hours a day and, you know, sacrifice, you know, your marriage or your, your all these things to make it work. I, you know, we try really hard to work five days a week. You know, Ed's got younger kids than I do. So get, get him home in time to sit down and have dinner with his family, tuck his kids in the bed. That's important. And we both share those values. So a shared value set actually goes into making, you know, what we do, you know, work. We're very on task when we're here and we're very committed to seeing it succeed. So it's it's a labor of love. It's a labor to be sure, but it's also something we both love doing. So it's, again, the partnership, he, yeah, you, you, I, you said it perfectly. He comes in with the same fire that I come into it with because his name's on it too now. And, you know, it's, he's got skin in the game and, you know, and he's more than adequate to step up to the test. So that's, that's fantastic. And so it was, it, it was a good decision for us. I know that some people have had negative experiences with partnerships. You know, I've had, you know, other businesses in my past where a partner was, you know, as the business grew, they weren't ready for it to grow that fast or they had other interests. And so, you know, it, someone loses steam or someone doesn't realizes that maybe isn't what they wanted to do. And, and so, and, and you know, that's happened before, but in this case, it's been a really good fit and it was the best, um, it was the best option for what we were trying to accomplish, you know, cause like I said, we have both, we both have very similar goals. So I see that that works now for some people, you know, who thrive on having a little bit more control and creative control, then, you know, a partnership may not be the greatest path for them. And maybe the employer route is better. One's not worse than the other, but I think that has to do with mindset. So I'm going to bring you back to your earlier life here as a former teacher, which you were, you've put together a lot of class plans and syllabuses for your students over the years. All of us listening right now are your students. The reason we're hearing your voice is to learn from you. If you were putting together a class on running a successful business, what would you be teaching? Sure. Um, I think that, I know I just said that I don't believe in the hustle till you die culture, but that's not to say if you don't believe wholeheartedly in what you're doing, that's going to show, you know, you got to be invested into that. Now, how you spend your time, we all get the same 24 hours and how productive you are. It will come down to, you know, your own personal habits and your own personal drive, but you do have to be willing to really put into it and treat it like the job you want it to be. So, you know, it's sort of that the old, you know, adage that, you know, you, you get what you give in that regard. And so may, putting effort, real effort into it is absolutely necessary. Um, it's not just going to happen. You know, I don't really believe in luck. I believe there's such a place, such a thing as being in the right place at the right time, but I think you make your own luck. Nothing's going to fall into your lap, you know? Uh, so, I think that you have to be willing to put in that work to do it and to be disciplined enough to do it even when you don't feel like doing it because that's gonna happen. You know, it's not all magical. Any job, I think anyone knows already, you know, 
I really I hate the saying that people say, you know, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. That's just absolutely not true. Um, you know, I work really hard and so does Ed and so do a lot of other people out there who are trying to make it work. And I can love what I do, but there are days when I would rather sleep in or when, you know, my back hurts or, you know, something and I and I really would like to not go do that. But, you know, you still have to show up and make it happen. So there's there's that aspect of just being there for it. That's big. Also, some people are naturally organized. I had to learn to be. Um, you got to get organized. You, you got to, you know, think about stuff like your taxes. You got to think about stuff like, you know, thinking ahead and ordering ahead. Like there's, you know, you, you can't just hope that they have what you need at the lumber yard because that's the day you chose to go shopping. I mean, you've got to be, you know, you got to think ahead, at least a few steps ahead to be able to make it work so that you're not always in a stressful state of mind trying to make it happen. Because, you know, the, you don't want the hardest thing about a certain build to be just getting the materials together because it's going to wear you out. Um, more than that, I think that there's also just, I said, I mentioned this earlier, but there are a lot of people out there building furniture and people do have a lot of options, but I really do believe that comparison is the thief of joy. And so I don't think it's not healthy to compare yourself constantly to other furniture makers, either in terms of their talent, their life stage, their success rate, all the, all of that stuff, their Instagram page, it doesn't matter. I mean, ultimately you have to be doing it for you because if you're doing it for other people, you're going to run out of joy for it. And you're not going to have the energy, the fortitude it takes to keep going to doing what you need to do, especially when times are tough. So, you know, it's, it's a matter of that. And also, I think that everyone needs, you know, my hobby used to be furniture building and then I made it my job. So I had to pick up a new hobby because everyone needs a release. Sometimes you need to be able to lock the door, turn off the lights and go do that other thing. You know, I've taken up fly fishing and I've started... <laughs> you know, reading more. And I've started just things that I can do that have become my new hobby so that I, ha I replaced that in my life. I think people need that. So I hope that's the kind of answer you're looking for. That is definitely the kind of answer I was looking for. You distilled out so many of the keys to being successful in this industry in what you just said and what you've been saying throughout this whole interview. Jeremy, thank you for sitting down with me. Thank you for sharing your time your wealth of knowledge, and your insights into this industry with all of us. I wish you all success as you continue your journey moving forward. Well, I really appreciate that, Ethan. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Amerson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.